High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next student visionaries of the year. Could that be your child? High schoolers who participate in this seven-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. Most importantly, this campaign is an opportunity for high schoolers to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Sound like something your child might be interested in? You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at lls.org students. That's lls.org slash students. Let Tend Dental make your dream smile a reality. We offer a variety of top-rated treatments, including Invisalign aligners. And for a limited time, Tend is offering $750 off orthodontic treatments. Offer valid through January 31st, so don't wait. Visit hellotend.com slash sale. That's hellotend.com slash sale. And book your free consult today. You must a kiss is just a kiss, a kiss of Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten stories of Hollywood's first century. I'm your host, Karina Longworth. Today, we begin a new season, which will unfold in two parts over the next six months. I call it Fake News, Fact-Checking, Hollywood Babylon. Great films of the silent years. This isn't news. This is totally unfounded gossip. It's a long way from Hollywood. Criticized for dealing too frankly with such themes as sex and nudity. Hollywood. Babylon. As you may remember from episode number 49 of this podcast, Hollywood Babylon is a book published by Kenneth Anger, a child actor turned experimental filmmaker turned pioneer in a form of Hollywood gossip that verges on conspiracy theory. Anger spent the 1940s and 1950s drifting between various inner circles and marginalized subgroups in and around Hollywood. And as such, he came to hear a lot of versions of scandalous Hollywood stories that ran counter to or went further than the accepted narratives of these events. By the late 1950s, Anger was living in Paris and in need of money, he started writing up for Cahiers de Cinema magazine some of the stories that he had heard through what amounted to 
a Hollywood party game of telephone. Anger eventually compiled these articles into a book, which paired usually partially fantasized or at the very least embellished versions of true stories with sometimes grotesque, often surreal or all too real photos, some from crime scenes and others from Hollywood still galleries. Thus, this book, titled Hollywood Babylon, blurred the line between real and fake. It purported to offer a secret, suppressed, true history, while also celebrating the hyper-real or super-real nature of Hollywood mythmaking. Though in their rough shape, the stories in Hollywood Babylon usually hew to verifiable facts, many of the details the book includes are simply inaccurate. The book was initially published in France in 1959, but it was not widely commercially available in the U.S. until 1975, by which point the studio system had crumbled, as had many formerly respectable American icons and institutions. And it was the perfect time for Anger's exaggerations and potentially libelous statements and insinuations to be accepted as the long-hidden truth. One of the reasons why so much misinformation still circulates about classic Hollywood, other than that the studios put so much of it out there, is that books by self-proclaimed experts such as Anger were not fact-checked before publishing and could not be fact-checked in real time by their readers because not only was there no internet, but there were few reliable texts of any kind covering the stories he wrote about. Over 40 years later, it's much easier to spot the things Anger got wrong, whether it's honest and basically meaningless mistakes that having access to Wikipedia or IMDb would have cleared up, or more serious instances of rumors and urban legends clouding the truth. It also becomes apparent that in some cases, Anger has a tendency to skew the truth according to his own biases and interests. And then there are other stories that Anger gets incredibly right, or even stops short of exaggerating or eviscerating a subject when he easily could have. This season, we're going to use Hollywood Babylon as the starting point to tell 19 stories, 11 from the silent era in the first half of the season, and then later, eight stories from the early 1930s and beyond. These are all stories that we've never talked about on this podcast, and some of them are amongst the most infamous scandals of Hollywood's first century. We're going to talk about figures like Fatty Arbuckle, Rudolph Valentino, Clara Bow, Mae West, and many more. Throughout, we're going to examine the stories that Anger tells and use both more recent scholarship and original reporting and texts to, as best we can, figure out what Anger got right, what he got wrong, how he used manipulative language to imply what he doesn't come right out and say, and how, even before Anger touched them, the stories of real people and real events could go into the funhouse ringer of the news and gossip industries and come out as fake news. The first topic of the season is the first topic broached by Anger in Hollywood Babylon, David Wark Griffith and his White Elephants, or the origins of the phrase and title, Hollywood Babylon. 
Here we welcome a special guest reading an edited excerpt from Hollywood Babylon. The god of Hollywood wanted white elephants, and white elephants he got. Eight of them, plaster mammoths perched on mega mushroom pedestals, lording it over the colossal court of Belshazzar, the pasteboard Babylon built beside the dusty Tin Lizzy Trail called Sunset Boulevard. Griffith, the movie director as god, was riding high, high as he'd ever go, over Illusion City, whooshing up a hundred-foot-high elevator camera tower, giant megaphone poised to shout the command to the thousands below, a mare's nest mountain of scaffolding, hanging gardens, chariot race ramparts and sky-high elephants, a make-believe mirage of Mesopotamia dropped down on the sleepy huddle of mission-style bungalows amid the orange groves that made up 1915 Hollywood, important of things to come. And there it stood for years, stranded like some gargantuan dream beside Sunset Boulevard, long after Griffith's great leap into the unknown, intolerance had failed, long after Belshazzar's court had sprouted weeds, and its walls had begun to peel and warp an abandoned movie set disarray, after the Los Angeles Fire Department had condemned it as a fire hazard. Still it stood, Griffith's Babylon, something of a reproach and something of a challenge to the burgeoning movie town, something to surpass, something to live down. Behind the scenes, among themselves, the miniature movie colony even dared to gossip about the god of Hollywood, about Griffith's obsession on screen and off with young female children. And were those Griffith discoveries, devoted, hard-working child women, really all that virginal? Was it possible? And thinking the unthinkable, was Lillian Gish Dorothy's lover? Putting aside for a moment what Anger does write here about Griffith, which we'll get to, it may seem like there's an aspect of the man and his work that is conspicuously missing. Throughout this season, I will edit excerpts from Hollywood Babylon in the interest of brevity and for clarity. But here, I mostly omitted additional details about the extravagance of Griffith's production of Intolerance. I did not cut anything about the problematic politics of Griffith's biggest hit film. If you are not a film historian or a silent era buff, and you know anything about D.W. Griffith, you probably know that he directed The Birth of a Nation, a film which is famous for two reasons. It was the biggest blockbuster hit of the silent era, and its story of two families during and after the Civil War is very, very racist. There are a lot of works of art and historical artifacts from the past that we can, with the benefit of hindsight and the passage of time, understand to be racist in ways that didn't occur to the producers and audiences of those things when they were first made. The Birth of a Nation is more complicated than that. When it was first released, a significant portion of its audience was incensed at the film's depiction of African Americans as savages unleashed by Reconstruction. Here was a movie in which the heroes were the Ku Klux Klan, a secret society of white nationalist terrorists 
which had coalesced amongst disenfranchised Southern white men in the years following the Civil War, but had largely been dormant for nearly 35 years. The birth of a nation was such a massive hit that it brought the Klan back. D.W. Griffith didn't think he was making a racist film because he didn't think about racism. He thought his version of American history, the version he learned as the son of a bitter former Confederate general, was the only version of history. Not everyone agreed with him even then. And in fact, the NAACP, which was then less than a decade old, successfully mounted on-site protests and a media campaign against the film, which succeeded in causing some screenings to be canceled. But for every single person who understood that the birth of a nation's depiction of race relations normalized a toxic and dangerous worldview, there were several people who took the film's version of history at face value, and or were so blown away by the film's narrative and aesthetic achievements that they just weren't bothered by its politics. Because its success legitimized the film industry as a business and an art form, The Birth of a Nation has, for over 100 years, been upheld as a film worthy of study and respect, in spite of its hateful ideological point of view and ugly imagery. Because the racism of Griffith's career-making film is and had long been old news, by the time Kenneth Anger was writing Hollywood Babylon, it didn't qualify as a source of scandal. What Anger was interested in, always, was puncturing the mythic and iconic images of Hollywood's famous and powerful by dredging up real scandals and whispered about rumors involving their personal lives that proved their publicly perfected personas to be a lie. So, instead of grappling with the ideology of Griffith's movies, Anger focused on the idea that in the wake of Birth of a Nation's massive success, Griffith became a full-blown megalomaniac. Despite his upstanding image and the virginal sheen of his actresses, he actually epitomized the era's excesses and sexual depravity. Let's catalog Anger's claims. First, that after the birth of a nation, D.W. Griffith believed himself to be the untouchable savior of cinema that the expense of his follow-up film, Intolerance, was unprecedented, and for naught because the film failed, and that the ruins of Intolerance's Babylon set was left to stand for years, its open decay serving as a symbol of Griffith's own failure and a cautionary tale to the rest of Hollywood's filmmakers. So far, somewhat reasonable. And then come Anger's suggestions that Griffith may have been a pedophile, and that two of his top stars, sisters Dorothy and Lillian Gish, practiced incest. Of course, Anger couches these claims as subjects of Hollywood gossip, which gives him license to print what he brands the unthinkable. Was there any truth to such gossip? And what about the other claims, which Anger couches as fact? including the image of the left-behind Babylon set, around which Anger builds his whole guiding metaphor. Today, we will try to answer those questions. We will skip the story of Griffith's childhood in Reconstruction-era Kentucky and his rather late-in-life entry into filmmaking, 
and enter his life and career at the moment when The Birth of a Nation made him American cinema's first behind-the-camera superstar. We will explore the making of his follow-up film, Intolerance, his relationships with actresses such as Carol Dempster and Lillian Gish, and Gish's relationship with her sister Dorothy, to try to answer three questions raised by Hollywood Babylon. Was Griffith's egomaniacal expenditure on his Birth of a Nation follow-up really that disastrous? Was he obsessed with child women who may or may not have been as virginal as they appeared? And why might gossip swirl that the Gish sisters were lovers? Join us, won't you, for Chapter 1 of Fact-Checking Hollywood Babylon. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. The Birth of a Nation and its success did not turn David Wark Griffith into an egomaniac. He already had a healthy ego before that film was ever in production. In 1913, the ambitious director was already at the top of his field, but he wanted more. He was chafing at the creative constraints of the short films that remained profitable for Biograph, the studio where Griffith had worked his way up from undistinguished actor to innovative top director and producer. Biograph was a company that saw no reason to innovate if the market wasn't asking for it, and after a series of disputes over Griffith's expenditures on feature-length films, he left Biograph to start his own production corporation with the financial backing of Roy and Harry Aitken, distributors who are looking for high-quality product to funnel through their releasing mechanism. As a goodbye kiss to Biograph, or maybe more like a goodbye kiss off, Griffith purchased a full-page ad in a New York newspaper, declaring himself to be the, quote, producer of all great Biograph successes, 151 of which the ad listed by name. The ad also gave Griffith credit for, quote, revolutionizing motion picture drama and founding the modern technique of the art. Among the techniques Griffith claimed to have invented in this press release were the close-up, the long shot, and cross-cut editing. Were any of these claims true? Certainly many contemporary viewers saw certain innovations for the first time in Griffith's films, which may have been the first feature-length films many audience members watched. 
But with our modern ability to account for a wider, more international cinema history, almost all of his claims to invention are easily walked back. Griffith is frequently associated with his use of close-ups. In one interview, he claimed that on the day he invented that type of shot, his cinematographer refused to cut off an actor's body until Griffith pointed out that the art museums were full of heads framed to omit the rest of the subject of the portraits. But director Edwin Porter, for whom Griffith worked as an actor, used close-ups in The Great Train Robbery and The Life of an American Fireman years before Griffith began directing. Griffith would also claim to have invented the fade-out, and later in life he expressed regret for not having patented it. But such in-camera dissolves and other special effects had been used by Frenchman Georges Melier in the late 19th century. Griffith was able to get away with claiming to such inventions because most of his audience, for his films and his self-promotion, did not have encyclopedic knowledge of the history of film, and there was no internet or even cinema books they could reference to call him out on his pretensions. What Griffith did innovate was using such special shots and editing techniques like cross-cutting regularly and in great variety, and not for shock value, but to aid his storytelling. Because he had no respect for the then-established conventions of filmmaking, he was able to break the rules and change what was considered, not least by him, to be a base medium into something approaching a real art. As his technique advanced, it motivated other directors to try new things and elevate their own image-making. So Griffith was rarely ahead of the pack for very long. His major innovations with The Birth of a Nation were the film's scope and its success. With a final budget of $100,000, The Birth of a Nation was extraordinarily expensive for its time, and Griffith's entire career was riding on its reception. The protests and court actions, led by groups such as the NAACP, managed to get in the way of a few screenings in a few cities and to inspire local censorship boards to order some minor cuts. And some public intellectuals argued forcefully against the movie. But ultimately, the public debate about the film's incendiary racial content did not hurt its earning potential. The movie was so aesthetically and narratively overwhelming for audiences for its time that most viewers weren't able to be critical of its ideology. Even some members of the NAACP went on the record saying that they had been emotionally swept up in the experience of watching the movie. The film ran in roadshow presentations around the country for the better part of a year, with premium reserved seats selling for $2 apiece roughly $50 each in today's dollars. All told, Birth was still playing in parts of the country for close to two years. And while it's very difficult to estimate accurately the earnings of any film from that era due to the fractured process of distribution and exhibition, which allowed for much graft and cooking of books, it's believed that the movie grossed nearly $5 million, of which nearly $2 million was pure profit for its producers and investors. Griffith had risked big, but he had won big, too. 
Griffith's second bid for immortality would be called intolerance. It was not a plea for racial tolerance. If any coherent message could be attributed to this epic film which interweaved four separate stories, it's that Griffith was striking back at critics who had been intolerant of the birth of a nation, who had soured what was otherwise an unquestionable victory by suggesting that Griffith had skewed history to his own purposes and had done so merely to earn money. Griffith believed that he had made most of his previous films just for the money, but Birth of a Nation he felt differently about, so that criticism stung. Griffith had long been a sort of libertarian, in that he thought that the government should stay out of the lives of citizens, and that what went on in one man's private life was his business and no one else's. There were few things Griffith had more contempt for than gossips and busybodies. He had made the highest-grossing movie ever made, and yet he felt its potential had been stunted by meddlers who sought to curtail his free speech and impede his dominance of the market. He was incensed that organizations like the NAACP would claim to know what was good or bad for his potential audiences. In the one quarter of intolerance set in modern times, Griffith would make villains out of social workers who take a mother's child away, believing they know what's in the heroine's best interest. But their intervention has tragic consequences. This segment, originally titled The Mother and the Law, was supposed to be the whole of Griffith's follow-up to The Birth of a Nation, but after he screened it for the first time, he was advised by his close friends and colleagues that it was too slight for his return to screens after such a phenomenal success. So, with his eye on scope and spectacle, Griffith set to work shooting three other stories, which he'd compile with The Mother and the Law into the finished feature. One part would depict the birth of Christ, another the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre in 16th century France, and the most extravagant and expensive part would tell the story of the fall of Babylon. That is where the elephants came in. Joseph Hanaberry, who had played Abraham Lincoln in The Birth of a Nation, did much of the historical research for intolerance. Griffith told Hanaberry that he wanted statuary of giant elephants, and it was Hanaberry's job to go through as many books as he needed to in order to find some historical justification that statuary of giant elephants was a thing in Babylon. In the end, Hanaberry couldn't find what Griffith was looking for, but Griffith was insistent on elephants anyway. These stone creatures would anchor a Babylon set massive enough to be captured in wide angle by a camera stationed on a hill a half mile away. The set itself was attached to the dirt below with ocean liner ropes and railroad ties. Hanaberry didn't understand why Griffith was trying to wedge these four disparate stories into one film. He thought Griffith was wasting time and money and should have just focused on making one feature set in Babylon. When they had their first preview of Intolerance in Pomona, 30 miles of bumpy, unpaved road outside of L.A., everyone told Griffith he had done it again, that he was a genius unparalleled. Joseph Hennebery kept his mouth shut. 
He had been totally confused by the movie and disappointed, but he was afraid to be the only no man. And yet, the next day, when Griffith asked him for his opinion of the film, Hanneberry decided to focus on one aspect that wasn't even really Griffith's work, the intertitles, which had been written by Anita Lowe's whose screenplays would help make Douglas Fairbanks and Jean Harlow into major stars. Here, the titles were giving too much information, Henneberry believed, and on too high of an intellectual level for much of the movie-going audience. Griffith was initially resistant, but eventually he let Henneberry edit the titles. But only so much could be done to make a film that was inherently avant-garde in its juxtaposition of four unrelated historical stories into a commercial hit. While most of the innovations credited to The Birth of a Nation were not innovations unique to that film, and its racism makes it a tough sit for modern audiences, Intolerance was actually a groundbreaking film in its interweaving of separate narratives. It was definitely ahead of its time, but it lacked the emotional pull that had made birth into the kind of movie that people who never went to the movies went to see, often multiple times. Intolerance was not the massive box office bomb that some historians have made it out to be, but it did not catch fire with the public the way the director's previous film had. And that meant it fell far below the expectations of Griffith and others who had invested in it, all of whom had been hoping for an even more massive blockbuster. Intolerance cost nearly $400,000 to make, a little over a third of which Griffith had financed himself. In the end, he was left with six figures of debt. Hi, I'm Una Chaplin, and I'm the host of a new podcast called Hollywood Exiles. It tells the story of how my grandfather, Charlie Chaplin, and many others were caught up in a campaign to root out communism in Hollywood. It's a story of glamour and scandal and political intrigue and a battle for the soul of a nation. Hollywood Exiles from CBC Podcasts and the BBC World Service. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Over the next few years, Griffith made the World War I propaganda drama Heart of the World and the films some consider to be his true masterpieces, Broken Blossoms and Way Down East. The latter was a major hit, as was his French Revolution drama Orphans of the Storm in 1921. But from there, his commercial popularity began to decline. By 1923, Griffith had the reputation of a man whose movies cost too much to make and demanded too high of a ticket price. As the editor of Photoplay magazine, James Quirk, put it, white flowers at $2 a piece are too high when other florists are selling them at 50 cents. By 1926, Griffith was forced to sign a contract at Paramount just to pay off debts. Heralded as American cinema's first master just over a decade earlier, he had frittered away his power and his empire and now found himself in a subservient position. As soon as a director became powerful or famous, Louise Brooks once wrote, the producers started thinking up ways to get rid of them. At Paramount, Cecil B. DeMille was pushed out for costing too much money. 
and he left behind an unfinished film called Sorrows of Satan. It was aptly named. Paramount asked Griffith to take the project over, and according to Brooks, quote, with Sorrows of Satan, they dug his grave. Paramount, unhappy with Griffith's handling of the film, took it away from him, too, and he was forced to seek work at the comparatively low-rent Universal. For the last 16 years of his life, he made no movies. His last years were spent at the Knickerbocker Hotel in Hollywood, where he lived off of an annuity and drank. He died in 1948. So what about that elephant-adorned set? Was it really, as Kenneth Anger claimed, left standing for years to taunt a filmmaker who would never have the power to mount such folly again? I found a newspaper item from April 1918, noting that the set still stood at that moment. It was, quote, disintegrating in the rain on Sunset Boulevard in Los Angeles, a monument to the greatest play of its type ever produced. The trumpeting elephants, gigantic figures alone, are falling to pieces. The question is, why was the set still standing there at least two years after Griffith had finished shooting Intolerance? Some reports claim that Intolerance was such a flop that there was no money to tear the set down, which doesn't really make sense. Other accounts hold that Griffith had left it up thinking, before Intolerance was released, that it could function as a tourist attraction for fans of the movie. This didn't exactly work out, though some reports suggest that local children used the site as a kind of jungle gym, and Griffith himself recycled portions of the facade as a backdrop for a few shots of Hearts of the World. But after that, it seems that he made no provision for maintenance of the Babylon walls. In 1919, after filming Broken Blossoms, Griffith returned to New York. Reports vary as to how long the Babylon set actually stood at the corner of Sunset and Hollywood Boulevard, with some suggesting it was torn down in 1919, others 1920. I can't find any documentation for Anger's claim that the set was torn down after being declared a fire hazard, though many reports published after Hollywood Babylon repeat that rumor. All I know for sure is that by 1922, the site was clear, and a year later, an Egyptian-styled movie theater opened on the land. That theater, the Vista, still stands and shows first-run movies today. Let's move on to another of Anger's claims. Griffith's obsession, on screen and off, with young female children. When D.W. Griffith first announced an ambition to work in the theater, his mother was disappointed. Though his father, a Mexican war medic turned gold rush prospector, turned state representative, turned Confederate general, turned hard-drinking raconteur, had long ago lost control of the family's land, the Griffiths still thought of themselves as landed gentry. Amongst his family and those like them, there was a suspicion of the arts and newer entrepreneurial professions divorced from the traditions of the past. What hope was there for the moral future of a young man surrounded by actresses, 
who were perceived by many in the late 19th and early 20th centuries to be equivalent to prostitutes. In fact, by the time he began acting and trying to write plays, the shy, physically awkward Griffith had likely been exposed to and visited actual ladies of the evening in Louisville while he was still a teen living with his family. This may be where he started to develop his ideas about women that would emerge in his films. Specifically, that virginal, very young women were the ideal objects of desire. But as soon as one spoiled such a pristine specimen with his dirty man touch, they'd be ruined. Better to save the filthy touching for women who were already soiled. Griffith would decide that there were two types of women, and he would name these twin poles the voluptuous and the spirituelle. A man went to bed with a voluptuous. He went to great lengths to attempt to rescue the poor defenseless spirituelle from the dangers of the modern world. There's no question that the adult Griffith still had an extremely narrow view of women and how he wanted actresses to play them. One of his actresses, Miriam Cooper, explained that Griffith only liked to work with girls who were, as she put it, young, beautiful, and supporting their mother. As he himself once said, quote, I am inclined to favor beginners. They come untrammeled by so-called techniques, by theories, and by preconceived ideas. I prefer the young woman who has to support herself and possibly her mother. Of necessity, she will work hard. I prefer the nervous type. I never engage a newcomer who applies for work without showing at least a sign or two of nervousness. If she is calm, she has no imagination. To me, the ideal type for feminine stardom has nothing of the flesh, nothing of the note of sensuousness. The voluptuous type, blooming into the full-blown rose, cannot endure. The years show their stamp too cruelly. The other type, ah, that is different. So, in other words, he was looking for a lack of experience, a lack of a father figure, a desperation to make money, neurosis, a lack of confidence, and a girlish rather than womanly body, on which he and his camera could project eternal youth. Though Griffith preferred the spirituals to voluptuous types, it's important to note that the term voluptuous was not necessarily being used in the modern sense here. It's not like he was casting two different kinds of women with two different kinds of body types. As Cooper noted, he liked his young ladies to be thin, ethereal types. I don't think there was a big bosom in the bunch. We were all flat as pancakes. Though Griffith endeavored to keep his private life private, what we do know about his relationships with some of the young actresses with whom he worked suggested that he habitually blurred the line between professional and personal. He had a tendency to begin casting young women when they were in their mid-teens, usually new to the business of movie making, often having been pressed into work to help their single mom stay afloat. Mae Marsh and Dorothy and Lillian Gish 
all of whom would play major roles in Griffith's best-remembered films, were abandoned by their fathers in the years or months before he stepped into a paternal and or patronizing role in their lives. The evening of the day that 15-year-old Mary Pickford, already a star on the stage, first screen-tested for Griffith, he asked her out to dinner. She turned him down, stressing their age difference, and the fact that she had yet to go on her first date with anyone. When she rejected him, Griffith offered a contract of $5 a day at the studio. She talked him up to $10 a day. One actress who felt that Griffith was disappointed in her from the moment they began working together was Blanche Sweet, who was only 14, but because she had already, in her own words, grown in all directions, she was too womanly for his tastes. Mae Marsh, who began working with Griffith in 1910 when she was 15, apparently began a romantic relationship with the director at some point not long after. Then came the Gish sisters, Dorothy and Lillian, ages 14 and 16. The elder, Lillian, became Mae Marsh's rival for Griffith's adoration. In his biography of Griffith, Richard Schickel implies that Gish was one of the actresses who Griffith adored off-screen as well as on, and others report that other men did not pursue Lillian because they assumed that she was, quote, Griffith's girl. But it's not clear whether or not they had a real romance. The closest Lillian got to publicly acknowledging feelings for Griffith came when she said, My love affair was with pictures and the man who created them. Still, Marsh felt that Griffith's attention on her was divided. On the set of The Birth of a Nation, when her relationship with the director was waning, Marsh jokingly told another actress on the film, Miriam Cooper, that she liked to call their director Mr. Hines because he liked to have 57 varieties of girls around him. Of course, Marsh was wrong. Griffith wasn't interested in different varieties of girls. He was interested in having lots of girls around who all conformed to the same type. Cooper later said that Griffith made a pass at her while shooting the movie, which she rejected by telling him that she was a good Catholic girl. Exactly the kind of thing he wanted to hear. This was the director who cautioned his actresses to never film a love scene that required them to actually kiss an actor on the mouth. He told them it was the surefire route to disease. When another director then ordered 17-year-old Dorothy Gish to kiss heartthrob Wallace Reed on camera, she insisted, We don't do such things in pictures. In films, we pretend to kiss. And with the camera at a distance, it seems that we do. Mr. Griffith told us we must never kiss actors. It isn't healthy. It seems clear that the filmmaker wasn't a mere pedophile or creep, but he had an unusual fetish that caused him to fall in love with teenage girls, and yet his greatest fear was that they would actually reduce themselves to having sex. Which doesn't mean that Griffith never had sex with any of them. While shooting Intolerance, Griffith met then 14-year-old Carol Dempster. The teenager was part of a dancing troupe Griffith had engaged to perform in the movie, 
Dempster would become his companion and would star in a number of his films, although it's possible their relationship did not begin until Dempster was slightly older. She didn't star in a Griffith film until 1918, when she was 16. But Dempster would come to replace Lillian Gish as the center of Griffith's cinematic universe, despite the fact that as an actress, Dempster was comparatively quite limited. Her personal and professional relationships with Griffith lasted until 1927, when Dempster was 24. Around that time, Griffith met 17-year-old Evelyn Baldwin, who he would eventually marry. Some Griffith observers shoulder the blame for the filmmaker's career decline in the 1920s on Dempster, which, the question of her talent aside, is a pretty unfair burden to place on a young woman who was groomed by this much older man from age 14 on. Hollywood reporter Adela Rogers St. John's once claimed that she spoke with Griffith in the 1940s, and he told her he regretted letting Lillian Gish get away. Roger St. John's claimed that she rebutted, Lillian didn't leave you. You chucked her out for that mediocre girl. Was Lillian Gish, D.W. Griffith's one who got away? In her book, Silent Stars, Historian Janine Bassinger quotes Griffith, saying that he felt Gish had, quote, a masculine mind and thought like a man. That's not how she appeared on screen. There's no question that she stands as the epitome of the Griffith female ideal. Molly Haskell explains this ideal as the natural product of the waning Victorian moral constructs and the, as it would turn out, short-lived, allegorical nature of silent film. Together, these forces demanded a flat type of female perfection, perpetually, even preternaturally youthful, eternally virginal, girlishly plucky and capable and yet defenseless against man's baser impulses. As Haskell put it, Gish seemed always delicate as a figurine, yet durable as an ox. A Griffith heroine needed to be durable for all of the punishment he put them through, whether they were the voluptuous dying for her sins or the spiritual reprieved and rescued in reward for remaining virtuous. Griffith's girl characters are always seen in a gaze that's at once paternalistic and romantic. But his female characters were almost always more interesting and richer than his male characters. And when he depicted female relationships, they were usually more layered and nuanced than his depictions of male-female relationships. And that brings us to Anger's third claim. That there was gossip that Dorothy and Lillian Gish were lovers. In their private lives, the Gish sisters were devoted to one another and not lucky in love. Lillian Gish frequently suggested that her sister and mother were the most important relationships in her life. Heaven to me was a place where I could be with mother and Dorothy all the time, went a typical quote. By the age of 20, though she was known as the most beautiful blonde in the world, Lillian had not had any public romantic relationships. 
and if she had not, in fact, been involved with Griffith romantically, it's possible she had never to that point done anything like what today we would call dating. There was not so much as a shred of gossip about her romantic life until Lillian was in her mid-twenties, when she was linked to Charles Duell, the mogul who had lured Lillian away from Griffith with promises of profit-sharing and creative input. Duell apparently frequently proposed to Lillian, even though until the last months of his relationship with Miss Gish, he was married to a woman with whom Lillian was friendly. Lillian initially put her full trust in Duel, but broke off their engagement before it came out that he was cheating her financially. Lillian shortly thereafter began a relationship with George Jean Nathan, which would turn into a 10-year attachment. Again, there were proposals, and again, Lillian refused to marry. When asked about it, she would insist that she had chosen her career over what she called the business of marriage. Dorothy Gish was different. Where Lillian was the great beauty destined to remain chaste and play tragedy, Griffith described Dorothy as pert and saucy. At the age of 22, Dorothy would marry the actor James Rennie, who would come to live with the Gish sisters and their mother in the family apartments. Asked about the arrangement, Lillian said she was happy to have a man around the house. However, quote, it seems odd for Jim to come to breakfast in his Japanese kimono. I didn't know men wore such things, at least in the morning. Eventually, Mrs. Gish decided enough was enough and sent Dorothy's belongings to her husband's apartment. Dorothy was devastated, saying to her mother, if I'd thought you would put me out, I wouldn't have married. As attached to her mother and sister as she was, Dorothy, unlike Lillian, was not chaste, not even as a pretense. She remained married to James Rennie for 15 years, though they did not live together nearly that long. He drank and she had affairs, most notably with actor Louis Calhoun. Lillian didn't approve of the way Dorothy lived her life, of her easy dalliances with men especially, but the sisters remained the closest person in one another's life until Dorothy's death in 1968. All of this is to say that, though there's no evidence to support gossip that the Gish sisters were lovers, you can see how their actual love lives provided the conditions for this gossip to take root even if just as a joke about how the sisters were closer to each other than either ever managed to get to a single man. This closeness was virtually dramatized in Griffith's film, Orphans of the Storm, in which Dorothy and Lillian play non-biological sisters who share a bond that is demonstrated to be stronger than any romance. And at one point, the actresses and real-life sisters are seen kissing one another on the mouth. Molly Haskell cites this scene as an example of the oddly incestuous gaze in all of Griffith's films. Usually it's a feeling that the father behind the camera is looking too lovingly at his daughter figure. But from there, it's a slippery slope to other types of familial love that may be too close for comfort. Next week, we will move on to the very first 
Hollywood suicide scandal. Join us then, won't you? Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. Today's episode was written, narrated, and produced by Karina Longworth. That's me. Our editors are Sam Dingman and Jacob Smith. Our research and production assistant is Lindsay D. Schoenholtz. Our social media assistant is Brendan Whalen. Original music was composed for this season by Evan Viola. And our logo was designed by Teddy Blanks. Special thanks to our special guest, T.S. Fall, who returned to the show to read from Kenneth Anger's Hollywood Babylon. T.S. played Anger during our Charles Manson's Hollywood series way back in 2015. Throughout this season, we will have a variety of special guests joining us to read excerpts from Hollywood Babylon. Stay tuned. For more information about this episode and other episodes, please go to our website, youmustrememberthispodcast.com. There you'll find show notes for every episode, which include links to our sources. If you like the show, please tell anyone you can, any way that you can. You can follow us on Twitter at RememberThisPod, and we're on Facebook and Instagram, too. And if you are a fan of this podcast, perhaps you'll also like my new book. It's called Seduction, Sex, Lies, and Stardom in Howard Hughes's Hollywood. It comes out on November 13th, but you can pre-order it now at Amazon.com or HarperCollins.com. We'll be back next week with an all-new tale from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night. Two sisters, that science solves crimes. Forensic science is exciting, challenging, and most of all, rewarding work. But there is a shortage of qualified individuals in this field. Hi, I'm Terry with Loyola University of Maryland's Forensic Science Department. Loyola is one of the only colleges in the country offering advanced degrees in forensic pattern analysis and biological forensics. Our courses, taught by forensic experts, feature hands-on training and small class sizes. They are based on real crime scene and forensic examiner training programs to ensure you are ready to make a difference. Our programs are open to students from a variety of academic backgrounds because we believe everyone can contribute to solving crimes. So what are you waiting for? Discover the excitement of forensic science at Loyola University, Maryland. Visit loyola.edu forward slash forensic for more information. That's loyola.edu forward slash forensic because you are ready to make a difference. 
join one of Loyola University Maryland's forensic science programs today.